Good morning. It's great to see you this morning and to be together. Uh, if you're first time guest of ours, we, we just want to say welcome again to you and uh, hope you feel at home here at Christ Central. We are starting a new series this morning uh, that uh, will last for six weeks. We're going to take a break for one week Easter weekend uh, and do an Easter service, but for six Sundays, we're going to be doing a series on the Christian's call to love neighbor, uh, to love thy neighbor. We've entered into our third year as a church, if, if you didn't know that. June of 2013, around 35 people, many of you committed to being a part of helping start and launch this church. And it's really hard to believe that it, it's almost been uh, three years since that time. But church planting 101, church planting basics, is the need to align people to the vision and the mission of what's being started. And I have read and have been counseled and advised by many that there would be uh, the constant need to realign as the church continues to grow in age and and in size, that if the Lord grows the church, and by God's grace, He has grown uh, us as a body here at Christ Central, then there will be people who are continually joining our church who are not there in the beginning, who are not there in the discussions of what we want to be about and what we're called to as a church, and so we'll need to realign. So we, as pastors and as leaders, we need to constantly recast the vision and the mission of what God has called us towards as a church. Alignment is crucial. Alignment is, is vital. Right? The alignment of any vehicle that you would drive is important. Right? Being out of alignment in your vehicle can cause serious problems. And you know the best way to get your car out of alignment? Do nothing. Do nothing and simply over time, hitting enough potholes on the road, simple wear and tear on your vehicle, your car will get out of alignment. I think that's an important lesson for us as a church. If we want to be a church that loses its focus, that, that loses its sense of mission, we simply do nothing. And over time, through the ups and downs in the life of our church, we will drift in what God has called us toward. So this series, Love Thy Neighbor, is one way that we're praying God will do that. In the fall, we're going to do a very explicit sermon series on the vision of our church, but this series and that series is a way for us to, to call us back, to call us back to our mission. So we're going to discuss the call to love. And all of you love love, right? Everybody loves love. No matter your faith or your lack of faith, no matter your philosophy on life, everybody thinks that love is important. Leo Tolstoy wrote, only a person who loves is alive. Gandhi said, where there is love, there is life. The Dalai Lama said, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. Soren Kierkegaard, in a book that Aaron Forbes Stokes gave me recently, wrote this, because to love human beings is still the only thing worth living for. And to love human beings is the only true sign that you're a Christian. Love is important. It's been said that if, if, if you were to take the whole world, shrink it into a village of 1,000 people, okay, whole world into a village of 1,000 people, in that village, 60 people have half the wealth. 500 people are hungry. 
600 people have no housing. 700 people have no clean water. And so the big question is, how do we get the 60 to care about the rest of the village? And here's the reality. The majority of us here this morning are the 60. We are the 60. How do we care and love the world? How do we get to the place where all of us are truly being good neighbors? I can give you all kinds of information, but information does not always create change, does it? Most Americans know by now that smoking cigarettes is is not good for health, and we've known that for a long time. The information's been dispersed, but many have continued and still continue to smoke. Information does not always change a person. I I could pile heaps and heaps of guilt and shame upon you. I could shame all of you to death every Sunday morning, and some of you would eat it up. Some of you would really like that. If, if I were to tell you every Sunday morning that you weren't enough and you weren't doing enough, some of you would love that. And I will tell you, as one who has enough guilt and shame for everybody in here, that if you try to live that way, you can live by that way for just a short amount of time, but it does not last, and it does not honor God. I could speak with great passion and conviction. I could walk back and forth, get you riled up every Sunday morning with conviction to get you convicted. But conviction doesn't always lead to action, does it? Many of us can be convicted and have a passion to love this city of Durham and to love our neighbor, but there's still no action. So how can we truly love neighbor? Love this city of Durham. We're going to look at a parable in Luke chapter 10 that may be familiar to some of you, but I think it is the place we have to start in this series of loving neighbor. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able as I read God's word to us. This is God's word. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Isaiah 40 tells us, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, I ask that you, would, that you would come and help us enter this story 
by your spirit, by your grace, to, to understand what our role is in this story, in this parable, that, that you would illumine our minds and, and that you would truly inflame our hearts and lead us, uh, Lord, out of this place different because you have spoken to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, the one who, who needs to hear from you as well, uh, would you uh, be pleased and would you speak, Lord Jesus, to us by your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, the first thing that I think needs to happen for us, Christ Central, to become a people of love is that we need to experience the weight of the call. The weight of the call. Now, we need to learn to listen and read this story from the ears of those to whom it was told. And if we can do that, we'll realize that this story packs incredible, serious punch. Look at verse 25. Let's enter back into the story. Verse 25 says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer is not a civil lawyer. This is a, a religious lawyer. He was an expert in religious law. He knew the Old Testament better than anybody here. And this lawyer stood up, which is courtesy, but the verse really describes the lawyer's intent. He stood up to put Jesus to the test. In Daniel's translation, he bowed up. <laughs> he bowed up to Jesus. He wanted to trap and expose Jesus. For Jesus was often seen with those on the outside, those who were unclean according to the law. This lawyer thinks Jesus has no respect for the law, and he, he thinks Jesus will undermine the law again. And Jesus fires a question back at the lawyer, which he does multiple times in this story. If you've ever heard the old Woody Allen classic, an inquirer asks a rabbi, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? And the rabbi, after a long pause, says, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? <laughs> so Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, puts it back on the lawyer with a question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The expert in the law sums up the law as Jesus does elsewhere. Here's the summary of the law. Love God and love your neighbor. And love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. Jesus is saying, you want eternal life? Make sure that everything you do, everything you think, everything you say is done only and always in reference to your life-consuming love for God. And on top of that, make sure that you meet the needs of your neighbor with all joy, speed, power, and force as you do your own needs. Do this, and you will live. Now, was Jesus telling the lawyer that he could inherit eternal life by his performance? No way. What Jesus does here is quite brilliant. Jesus is brilliant. He gives a vision of selfless love that no person could ever achieve. He wants the lawyer to feel the weight of the law, the weight of this call to love. And so the, the lawyer responds again, as the text says, desiring to justify himself. And he asks, well, who is my neighbor? You see, he feels the weight of the call to love and attempting to minimize and whittle down the law. He asks, who's my neighbor? 
And then Jesus tells the story of a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a 17-mile road, three-fifths mile of a descent. And this man falls among robbers, stripped, beaten, left, left half dead in a ditch on the side of the road. That road was known and called the Bloody Road because of its danger. And two men pass the man lying in the ditch, a priest and a Levite. And the Samaritan stops. The Samaritan stops and helps the half-dead man and meets him emotionally, physically, financially, medically, and transportationally. He meets the needs of this man lying in the ditch. So this is what Jesus is saying. The basic bare minimum requirements of living out God's law is social work. (laughs) That's the basic bare minimum. Feed, shelter, liberate, bring about justice. That's, That's the minimum of God's law. If you examine your life under this call that Jesus is giving to love God and to love your neighbor in this way, if you, if you are right now, you, you may be like I often do and like a lawyer, you're, you're feeling the weight and you're trying to, to get out from under it. And we all desperately, like the lawyer, want to justify ourselves. We, we all want to know the things that we're supposed to do. If, if Daniel and Timothy just told me the four things I needed to do every Sunday, then I would feel good. When I left here, I knew I would know what to do and how to live. But Jesus tells this story to the lawyer to get the lawyer to envision, envision himself in this story, which is the role of a parable. We are to envision ourselves in this parable. And the point of Jesus, listen to me here, the point of Jesus heightening the call to love God and to love neighbor to this degree that seems impossible is to get the lawyer to see himself not as the priest, not as the Levite, not as the Samaritan, but as the half-dead man lying in the ditch. Jesus wants the lawyer to cry out, I can't do this. I don't have what it takes. I cannot justify myself. And I'm sad to say that the majority of us who've heard this parable before, and its name, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we take the name and we put the emphasis of the story on us being the Good Samaritan. I'm sure some of you who are familiar were ready for me to, to make that push initially. And I think we're way too fast, way too fast, to put our role in this story as the Good Samaritan. This really should be called the parable of a dead man lying in a ditch. Because that's our role. Calling it the parable of the Good Samaritan inevitably sets all of us up to take this story as a hero who offers us solely an example of imitation. It's dangerous. We have to experience the weight of God's call to love and then cry out, we can't do it. We can't obey enough. We can't do enough good. We must have our hearts and our sin exposed, crying out, I am in need. I am in need. Brothers and sisters, this is who we're called to be ever before we can be a good neighbor. This is a church, Christ Central, whose vision is to seek the renewal of the city of Durham, to see the makeup of our city reflected in our congregation. And this city is multi-ethnic, it's multi-class, it's multi-generational. We want to see that reflected in the city. But, so let me share a little, bit of, a little bit of a fear of mine. That vision and that mission, urban renewal, a city that reflects, a church that reflects its city, it's kind of sexy in our culture today. 
It's attractive to socially conscious and active people. It's attractive to do-gooders, <laughs> which I've fallen to be. And the last thing that I think God is calling us to in this vision as a church is to be self-righteous. To think we have it right and we know the way to love Durham and we know the way to do church. We get it while other people don't. This morning, I want to say to my heart, I want to say to your heart, we all need to move from an overly high view of ourselves and the bankruptcies of our own goodness into a passion of Jesus where we know that through him and by him alone are we saved. And you, we don't need another sermon on good works. We need more sermons on death and then the life that's found in Christ alone. We must be recipients of Christ's strong love and his rescue of us over and over and over so that then we can be fueled to love our neighbor. We must be neighbored by God before we can ever neighbor others. We must be neighbored by God before we can ever neighbor others. Now, I'm not saying that loving neighbor should not be a mark of the Christian. It is, in fact, the very mark and fruit of our lives that shows that we are experiencing the great love of Christ towards us. But we needed to start with the weight of this call. So now we'll move to the who. Who are we called to love? So this man and this parable is going down the bloody road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's beaten, stripped, left half dead, and here come three people. The first, a priest, educated, religious, probably upper class, high society. The second, a Levite, temple leader, worship leader. You have a pastor and a worship leader walk right by the half dead man on the side of the road. The robbers, they intentionally sin against this man, beating him and, and robbing him. The priest and the Levite sin by neglecting the man. It's the Samaritan who sees and stops and loves the man. Samaritans, they were half-breeds, sellouts, despised, because hundreds of years before Jesus, the Samaritans intermarried with an invading army and culture, and so they were, they were despised by Jews. And the Samaritan, the outcast, comes to deal with the outcast, binds up the wounds, pours oil and wine, displaying acts that any normal person would find inconvenient. This was expensive of his time and of his resources. And he puts this man on his own animal, dying to his own comfort and to whatever prospect he had of having a good time on his journey. And he brings the man to an inn, and, and it takes care of him the whole night, further interrupting and frustrating any plans that this man had. If he thought he was going to check into the hotel, have a good night, uh, late night drink, and then go to bed for a good night of sleep, his plans were interrupted. He was going to take care of the man the whole night, and he gets up the next morning, and he goes to the front desk. He books the mugged victim for an indefinite stay, all expenses paid. Robert Capone says that the Samaritan, the half-breed, the outcast, finally found someone who lived in his neighborhood. Another person rejected and needy. See, the lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? And he wants a very clear, simple definition. 
so that he can go about his life and feel good about himself. And Jesus is saying, Christian, you are to love anyone and everyone who is in need because you yourselves are in need. You are to love your neighbor who is in need. A sign that the gospel of Jesus Christ has gripped you and is changing you is that you cannot look at a world that is half dead and walk by. You and your neediness need to love others in their neediness. Love those in your neighborhood. We're going to preach over the next few weeks on loving neighbor and hospitality, loving neighbor and evangelism and in our work and, and the marginalized. The mark of a Christian is a love that permeates in every area of our life to any and everyone who is in need. If you ever watched an episode of the TV show Undercover Boss, it's a TV show where the owner or the president of a company dresses up like someone who's new to the company and sees how the management and the other employees treat, treat them. And some employees are kind to the boss who's dressed up and other employees treat the dressed up owner with disregard and hostility. Jesus plays dress up. Jesus says, do you remember when you took care of someone in need? You took care of me. You remember when I was in prison and I was naked and I was cold and you cared for me, you cared for someone, you cared for me. I dressed up. Love towards that person is love towards me. So let me ask you, do you see people? Do you really see people? Are you too busy to really see need? Are you willing to stop and be interrupted? So the hearers of this story would have assumed that this man lying in the ditch was a Jew. They would assume that, which means that a Samaritan loved a Jew. Bitter enemies. Samaritan is loved by the Jew. So who are we to love? Anyone and everyone in need, even and especially your enemy. I love Frederick Buechner, and I love his work in the magnificent defeat. Listen, this is kind of long, but listen to this call to love that is focused upon what I think is being taught here in this parable. He, he writes, the love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, and at this the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely, this is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. This is the call of the Christian to love. To love any and every, and especially love our enemy. And our love is not just love in theory, but it's love in action. It's tangible and it's costly. The Samaritan isn't moved emotionally and sentimentally here. He doesn't just think about loving the man who's half dead in the road. The Samaritan does something about it. He does something about it. He crosses the road. He gets dirty and he gets bloody and he risks his life. 
and his well-being, and he pays the financial debts and the future expenses of this man. Love acts. Church, I want to tell you that if we're going to be a church that sees the renewal of Durham, if we want to see individual lives changed, if we want to be a community where we're, we're seeing healing happen, and we want to see the culture transformed, it's going to happen when you see, when you stop, and when you love your neighbor. The strength of this church in accomplishing what God has called us to does not sit solely upon the shoulders of me and Timothy. Thank God it does not. The strength of this church is the 250 plus of you being changed by God's love so that you see others in need and you're willing to see them, stop for them, and then love them with tangible love. We want to stir you up by God's word and by the spirit and by the table and by all means that God gives us to love others in the same way that you're being loved by Christ. And so if the world is 1,000 people and the majority of us are the 60, imagine what it would look like if 250 of us loved this way. Not with programs, not relying on me and Timothy to give you some things to do, but your life. It's fueled by the love that you're receiving Christ. And everyone you see in need, anyone you come in contact with who is needy, you see them, you stop for them, and you love them. Imagine what our city would look like in the flourishing of our city if 250 of us lived that way. I shared this before, but in the 4th century, Emperor Julian, known as Julian the Apostate, was a pagan. He hated the conversion of Christians. He was wanting to move the Roman Empire back to paganism. And Julian wrote about what was hindering his plan for spreading paganism. And he wrote this, it's the Christians. Greeks feed Greeks, Romans feed Romans, but Christians feed everybody's poor. The reason, he said, we cannot unhinge Christianity is because of their charity, because of their love. Christians love in action, and they love anyone and everyone across racial lines, across class lines, across generational lines, not to people who are just like us, but to anyone and everyone who is in need. We love people in our neighborhood because we know our need. Let's look last at the way of the call. Not just the weight, not just the who, but the way. Jesus tells the lawyer at the very end, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. This is the key. This is the way we're to live. It's to understand that you and I, that you are on the road and your life is bleeding out and your only hope is an act of free grace towards you from an enemy, no less, who doesn't owe you any mercy but owes you the very opposite. See, the gospel says that Jesus came on this road and we owed him everything, and he saw you, and he stopped for you, and he had compassion on you. Jesus traveled a long and bloody road to Jerusalem that descended to the point of Jesus being beaten, spit upon, left alone, and crucified. He did so to love you with an extravagant and tangible and costly love. Please don't rush past the gospel. 
Church, please don't rush past the gospel with plans of how you're going to save the world and how you're going to love the world. Because if you think that being a Christian is all about what you do, and again, I fall prey into this, if that's where you lean, you will measure yourself and you'll measure this church and you will measure others by their productiveness. That's dangerous. This parable is part of a larger section of the Gospel of Luke that's meant to be read together. And right after this parable is the story of Martha and Mary. Maybe familiar to you. Martha welcomes Jesus into their home. And Mary sits at the feet of Jesus just listening to his teaching. Martha is distracted with, with much serving. And so she goes up to Jesus and she says, and I envision Martha doing so with incredible irritation and frustration. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She's not serving And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, with compassion in his voice, with a longing for Martha to really get it, for Martha to know she's missing it in a big way. Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion. She has chosen to let me love her. Jesus looks at many of us this morning, all of us this morning. Martha, Martha, You get yourself so worked up about so many things, and it's a wonder that you're not killing yourself with all of your effort. It's taking you just to hold your life together. Martha, Martha, I see, and I hear you. I see and I hear even you're lashing out at me, and you're lashing out at your brothers and sisters for their unproductiveness. Martha, Martha, you have the one thing you need, and it's to fill your need for me and to let me love you To know that you're broken and that you're needy and then to allow me to bandage your wounds. To pour out my oil and my wine and to carry you on my shoulders and to provide for you now and in the future. Christ Central, I am convinced, deeply convinced that if all of us were a people who knew the deep, deep, transforming love of Christ in this way, we would be a people who are willing to travel a long and descending and at times a bloody road to love any and everyone in need. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to not rush over this gospel, to not have a hero complex, savior complex, to think we're, we're the good Samaritan us individually or even us as a church to think we're going to come into the city and be the ones who help the half-dead man on the side of the road. We're the ones lying in the ditch. We need you, Jesus, to see and stop and love and provide and care for us. And We want to whittle out of that, Lord. We want to think we're just okay and like the lawyer. We, we want to kind of move beyond that. And Lord, you tell us to stop. Be merry. Sit at the feet of Jesus. So Lord, help us to sit and and to be loved by you. And then, Lord Jesus, would we be fueled to love our neighbor with, with force and power that comes from you and you alone. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.